This episode is brought to you by hrvcourse.com. If you're new to heart rate variability or you just want to take your use of it to the next level, there are now online courses designed to help you do exactly that. Hundreds of people from NFL coaches to doctors to athletes and health seekers are already taking advantage of the in-depth course material. It's all online, go at your own pace, and the material focuses about half on the science and mechanisms and half on the data and real-world application of HRV. The courses are also platform-independent, meaning the content applies to you no matter which HRV app or hardware you use. Continuing education credits are available as well. And last, make sure to get your 10% discount for being a listener of this podcast by using coupon code ELITEPODCAST at checkout. To take your use of HRV to the next level, head on over to hrvcourse.com. Welcome to the Elite HRV Podcast, where experts share their experience using heart rate variability and other biomarkers to optimize health and human performance. Welcome back to the Elite HRV Podcast. Today we have the SOC doc, Dr. Steve, and you'll have to help me with your last name. Ganjemi. Ganjemi, Dr. Steve Ganjemi. And uh, I was just telling Steve before we hit record that we had some folks reach out requesting an interview with the SOC doc. And uh, after looking him up, it seems like he has some really interesting things to say. So here we are. And thank you for joining us, Steve. Yeah, Thanks for reaching out. Look forward to uh, being on the show today. Yeah, definitely. So um, I like, uh, I went over to your website and read some of your uh, about and some of the different things that you've got going on. Um, and, and I think sometimes it's hard to pin down what folks actually do when they look at so many different areas. So, uh, I like one of the questions that you have on there is, are you really a doctor (laughs) and, and what is your kind of typical, uh, response to something like that? Yeah, well, I'm a, uh, I'm a chiropractic physician. I've been in practice just over uh, 19 years, actually this month. So kind of seasoned out there and, Although my, uh, my doctorate degree is in chiropractic, my practice is really, um, it's kind of like a general practice of treating a person as a whole unit. So I don't just like adjust spinally or adjust joints. I do a lot of musculoskeletal type therapies, a lot of fascial type therapies. And a big part of my practice is uh, nutritional, especially helping people balance their hormones. I see a lot of thyroid case- cases, people trying to... Uh, either, uh, you know, adjust their thyroid medication or, or uh, improve their thyroid with or without medication, if that's the case. Or I see a lot of women with PMS issues or postmenopausal issues, a guy with low, got a lot of guys with low testosterone or all the way down to kids from failure to thrive and autistic type kids. And, and then in terms of athletes, I see everyone from the weekend warrior who injured their foot or shoulder or whatever, uh, all the way up to, uh, a good amount of elite athletes from golfers to tennis players, hockey players, UNC soccer players here uh, close to my office in uh, Chapel Hill, North Carolina. So it's a, it's a pretty widespread practice and uh, I like to see how everything basically integrates in with one another. In other words, how an injury 
may have evolved from a nutritional consideration or her out may have evolved from poor footwear or maybe an overtraining type syndrome in another person or maybe someone's getting sick often or has a, a low in, uh, low energy or poor sleep patterns due to some stress or nutri nutrient deficiency diet uh, diet issue or whatever the case may be so it's very individualized type of practice that I see so a lot of, I see a lot of people with acute problems and chronic problems and just about everything in between wow yeah that is that's a really broad spectrum it so it, but I it sounds like you've kind of found that or at least I would imagine to be able to treat that kind of broad of a spectrum, you're starting to find some patterns or like commonalities that mm -hmm. um, underlie a lot of whether it's a high person trying to increase performance on one end or uh, trying to just basically not be sick uh, and be well again on the other end. Um, yeah. Or some sometimes a mix of both. But uh, <laughs> um, is that kind of what I'm feeling there? Yeah, that's pretty much the case. I mean, of course, there's always exceptions, you know, genetic issues or, or, or something like that. Or, you know, you, you had a bad day and you were out running and you, you twisted your ankle from, you know, just jumping a creek run or whatever the case may be. But yeah, I mean, usually people, you know, the, the saying is, and I think I'm not the one who coined it or thought of it, but you know, you don't just wake up sick or injured one day. You don't, you don't just go up for a a swim one day and all of a sudden you, you, you know, you, you pull a rotator cuff or, or injure your shoulder. You're, you develop these imbalances, these sort of, uh, these patterns of compensations due to, you know, I guess in a nutshell, you could say that you're basically, uh, not recovering or biting off more than you can chew. You know, you're someone's diet isn't adequate. Their rest and recovery, including their sleep periods aren't adequate. They're not getting proper nutrition. They're working too much. So even though they might not be training hard, they just not, might not be recovering properly. Or maybe they're maybe they're pushing themselves too hard with family stress, with lifestyle stress, of course, work stress. You know, people you know working 50, 60 hours a week today isn't uncommon, especially in the, the U.S. So you know, all of a sudden, or not, you might feel like you came down with an injury, but it was just a slow wear and tear on your body as it's sort of tried to adapt or really a better word would be to compensate and you develop these compensations upon compensations and these layers upon layers and then your body starts to dysfunction create these biomechanical instabilities or these inefficiencies and the next thing you know you know your foot's not landing the same way when you run your shoulder's not swinging the same way or your scapula's not not functioning properly as you as you swim or climb and then all of a sudden you end up with a musculoskeletal complaint also known as an injury. So yeah, these things tend to evolve over a period of time. Very common. Okay. Yeah. That makes sense. I mean, it, it I, I like that you put it that way because kind of what I've found too is that, um, it usually takes like there's some threshold or some acute situation that brings it to your attention, but it's something that's been brewing for a long time. Exactly. Uh, yeah. Okay. And then usually once I, it's very common, another common thing I'll see in my office, someone will come in with that chief complaint, whatever it may be. And two, two things typically happen 95% of the time. One is they realize they have a lot more problems than what they think they have. In other words, you know, they forgot about their back pain. They forgot about the fact that they only sleep three hours every night. They forgot, you know, that they're, that they're, they're, they're not, uh, 
realizing that their energy is terrible after lunch or something like that. They're just worried about the the injury that's keeping them from performing or, or doing what they were once able to do comfortably. And then the second thing that's really common is people realize that the injuries that they once had really have never been resolved. It's super common that I'll see someone, say for a knee injury, and a lot of times, and I talk about this on the sock doc side, I, I sometimes never actually have to even treat the area of the complaint. In other words, I actually might not have to do anything specifically to the muscles or the connective tissue around the knee, but it's a process of working backwards to see what other injuries have uh, been in play that caused, say, a gait disturbance resulting in that knee problem. So I might end up, say, treating the, like you know, a shoulder muscle. So, cause their, their knee and their shoulder aren't, uh, performing or, or, uh, functioning properly during a gait cycle, or maybe their ankle is still an issue from an old sprain. So their foot's pronating improperly and that's, uh, causing a, a shock issue up to the knee. So these injuries, even though somebody not, might not have pain anymore, a lot of times there's still, there, there's like a body memory or a muscle memory, a neurological memory, you could say of the injury. And it's still coming back to haunt them months, typically years later. Wow. So is there, that's, that's incredible way to, to put it. I think it kind of captures it for everyone. Is there some tests uh, that you like to do when somebody comes in with a physical type injury like that, um, specifically to kind of isolate up or down the chain or, uh, or to see, you know, where the root cause might be coming from? Yeah, well, I mean, for me, you know, my 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 practice is you know long long visits, one one sometimes two hours long, where I'm going through each muscle individually and as a group on how they function as as a unit and and um, you know with other muscles to see what muscles aren't firing properly. So I'm using a lot of specific type of muscle tests to then address where that problem may be resulting from or contributing to. Um, so, you know, that's why it's sometimes hard to say, even though I've made a lot of sock doc videos and say, oh, you know, if you have plantar fasciitis, you know, look for this muscle here, like tibialis posterior, or look for the soleus muscle, or, you know, don't look in your foot or your heel where the pain is, you know, look, look here behind the tibia bone or up behind the knee. And you can, usually that's where the, the trigger points or the fascial release points are, you know, but sometimes people have that foot problem in this example, you know, from a hip issue. And those are super hard to find on your own if you're not with a good doc or therapist who can help you identify those. So sometimes you're left with um, a very good sense of self-awareness. Like, you know, even just like looking in the mirror, it's, it's, it's so common. I'll see in my office, we have this really nice, we have these huge doors in my office and these really big mirrors, like 10 feet tall mirrors that go up the whole door. And not that you need them that tall, but the point being is you can get a really good visual of someone's entire body when they stand in front of it from head to toe. And I'll say to someone, I'll go, like when I first see him, I'm like, do you realize just standing here, your say left shoulder is an inch and a half higher than the right? And they're like, no way. I'm like, go look in the mirror. I'm like, you got to be kidding me. And if it's a kid or a spouse with the, you know, with the wife or husband there, I'll say, you know, look, look at him or her. And they'll say, you know, I'm not even realizing that until you told me right now. And now it's so obvious or, you know, typical today, you know, with people texting and on laptops so much, you say, you know, do you realize you're looking down constantly? Like, you know, your chin is tucked down to your sternum. If, you, if, if I, 
if, if we look to see where your eyes were going right now, you know, they're not out at the horizon. They're looking down and people have lost this awareness of their body position. And sometimes that's from an old injury. You know, maybe if you got in a bad car accident or, you know, just even a fender bender where someone hit you from behind 10, 15 miles an hour at a stop sign, you got a little whiplash that can really change cervical spine function. And maybe, you know, or most likely you don't have headaches or neck pain anymore, but maybe that changed your cervical spine. And now you're, you know, you're, you're, you're not looking up anymore and it's changed the biomechanics of your spine. And that could contribute to why you have say a shoulder issue, you know, years later or something like that. So it's, it's good to be self-aware or, or, ha, or, you know, see how you look, um, you know, in the mirror. And I'm not talking just about body fat or overall appearance, but you know, what do you look like from left to right or take a picture of yourself from one side to the other. If you're running, you know, how's your running gait? Does a foot flare out? Does, you know, one hip kind of kick in when you run? Do you swing your shoulder? I remember seeing this, uh, this division one runner many years ago, and she was super fast, you know, obviously to be a division one runner. She was here at Duke and unbelievable runner. And I watched her run one day and I said, do you realize when you run your right arm, like makes a complete circle, you know, her, her forearms were at 90 degrees, like they should be just above her waist and really relaxed hands. But why her left, her left arm swung in and out, like or back and forth, I should say, not in and out, you know, like you should when you're running, really relaxed. Her right forearm made like this oval-type circle while she was running. She didn't realize it. Mm -hmm. Nobody had ever mentioned that to her. You know, there's some inefficiency there, but the point being, and uh, and there was honestly nothing major to that. I, 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 we were able to reduce a little bit, but I think it was just an old, an old pattern that she had developed, um, you know, which can result in some running economy inefficiency. But the point being is that, you know, you get used to how you are every day and you might not be aware of some inefficiency that you develop, you know, much like if you gain a, a pound every couple months and, you know, next year you're 30 pounds heavier, you or the people in your family might not really notice that too much, but you see someone you haven't seen for a year and you're like, whoa, you gained some weight, you know, that sort oh, of thing. Right. So is this something that, um, aside from just, you know, inefficiency and running and that type of thing is, is asymmetry from, you know, in any direction, front to back or left to right, is asymmetry almost always a bad sign or a sign of something that you might want to look into? I mean, that's a great question. And the answer is sometimes, which I know is super broad. It, it, it depends on why the asymmetry is there. And it also depends on how severe it is, you know, so there's a gray area to what is normal. I don't think that, you know, obviously you could look at one end of the spectrum, you know, could you say, someone who is perfectly symmetrical, if that person even exists today, and you looked at them, you know, from the side and from front to back, and you say, oh, you know, your hips are perfectly aligned, your scapulas, your, your ears, you know, and from the side, you know, your, your ears over your shoulder, over your hip, that whole thing, you know, you're like, if you dropped a plumb line down, you're perfectly symmetrical. But that doesn't necessarily equate to them being perfectly efficient, whatever that may be, you know, we're not striving per for perfection, you'll never get there. You know, right. that doesn't mean that they have no health symptoms at all, whether that be structural, neurological, visceral, digestive, whatever. Likewise, you could get someone with, you know, pretty, not going to the other end of the spectrum here, you know, like really poor posture. You know, they're just a mess. You know, maybe they sit at a computer all day long, they're hunched over, their shoulders are rolled forward, their hips are, you know, whatever direction. Don't, don't, you, you get talking about this. me. 
Yeah. <laughs> but, but I mean, you know, I mean, yeah, you could say, well, highly unlikely that that person is feeling well. A lot of people don't know what it's like to feel well. But, you know, there, it's not like you say, oh, well, that person, because they have all these problems are going to have or are all these visuals, visual asymmetries is going to have this many, like, say, 10 times more than the person who doesn't have that symmetrical imbalances. It's not going to equate that directly. And I mean, as someone's health improves, as someone's function improves, definitely symmetry should be better. Absolutely. Now, should someone's, you know, a lot of physical therapists and, you know, as a chiropractor, you know, we learn in school, you know, you, you know, we look at leg length, which is typically reflection of the hips. It's one hip higher than the other physical therapist. You know, they usually look for rotation. You hear someone goes to physical therapist, they say, oh, you know, you have this hip anterior rotated. Someone goes to a chiropractor, they say, oh, this leg is short. You have a high hip on that side. Um, whatever the condition may be, but you know, if, if say someone's hip is one inch higher on one side than the other, I mean, by the time they're functioning better and some treatment is performed or some rehabilitation, ideally that should not be that drastic of a difference, but are you looking for a, a completely, you know, perfect symmetry? It's, it's hard to say if that's ever achievable and is that really necessary for optimum function? Does that make sense? Right. Yeah, that makes sense. And yeah. So it's very uh, individualized based, but also, you know, there's, there's obvious stuff. And then you get to the point where, you know, you say, ah, yeah, that could be better, but it might not be that big of a deal. Okay. Yeah. So if folks, uh, you know, get out the micrometer, uh, yeah. measurement tool, uh, then that's probably overkill. But if you do look in the mirror and see that, like you said, uh, one shoulder's noticeably lower than the other, um, if it's easy enough to notice at at a look in the mirror like that, it might be a sign that there's something somewhere in the chain yeah. that might be worth looking into. Or, or another thing, it's not just visual, but but listen too. Listen to when maybe you run. Does uh, you know you should be soft when you move or when you walk, of course. You know, someone shouldn't hear you walking loud unless, you know, it depends on the surface too. But, you know, if, if you're, if you take a step with your right foot and you're quiet and your left foot is, you know, you hear a thump every time, that's obviously an issue. You know, why are you, why are you thumping on the left side? Why is the right side light? And the same with you running or, you know, for, for someone who's swimming, you know, is your right arm gliding in and your left arm just splashing down. So things like that is something, something to look at when, when you get into, uh, you know, symmetry. So, so visual aspects as, as well as, as well as uh, audible to some extent. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. The auditory cues are interesting. I've, um, tried to experiment with that just running quietly, for example. Uh, one thing I found is that I, when I'm trying to run more quietly, I, I hold my breath, which isn't uh, very yeah. sustainable for running, right. but, uh, <laughs> um, so that's interesting. Um, uh, Good cues. So, is so these types of tests are obviously, um, you know, just very low tech. Something anyone can do. Listen to their running gait. Uh, look at their kind of posture and symmetry in the mirror. Um, and those are types of things that you include in some of your videos on SockDoc, yeah. right? Yeah. Okay. Uh, and where does while we're on that, where does SockDoc the name come from? So SockDoc comes back from when I, I had always been a pretty much minimalist type runner, you know, did cross country in high school, you know, and therefore racing flats, was a wrestler, so always wore wrestling shoes, 
for those people out there who knew that, you know, I mean, those are super minimalist type shoes on the mat, um, always barefoot. And then when I got into Ironman triathlons, well, even just tri regular triathlons in the early nineties and then Ironman in 96, I was wearing Nike freeze when those came out, uh, the, you know, one of the first non toe shoe minimalist shoes. Anyway, that eventually just evolved to me wearing no shoes in my office you know, and it's in the winter, I'd wear socks in the office just because it can kind of get chilly down here in uh, North Carolina. And then uh, a friend of mine out in California, he just came up, he's like, you're like the sock doc. And it just kind of had a good little jingle to it. So we just made a website off that with all my ideas based off natural injury tre treatment and prevention. Uh, at the time, a little bit more tailored to runners and endurance athletes. It's kind of evolved a little bit away from that maybe today, but still attracts mostly that crowd. And it's, it's integrates how we're meant to move naturally. So, you know, being barefoot, being unshod, you know, not wearing anything super protective unless it's of course necessary. So you're wearing, you know, if you can't go barefoot, you're wearing a zero drop, you know, uh, non-motion altering type footwear. Um, so now I'm actually, it's kind of funny because even though I still use the term sock doc just because it's taken off or known there, um, as you found out, but uh, I'm actually going to wear socks much anymore unless I go for a run with shoes on. I'm usually just barefoot in the office without anything on my feet. Nice. So that's how that pretty much came about back in 2011, I think. Okay. And so we've talked a little about kind of the structural and movement piece, which we'll keep integrating that into the conversation. But you mentioned earlier that you look heavily at nutrition. Um, and also, I think you you look at the integrated piece of how nutrition and movement and structure and all that kind of fits together. Um, what is it? What do you kind of look for in nutrition? Is that something you look at with people who have physical pain and things? Or is that like when people come in with specifically for digestive issue or something like that? Or Well, that's, a, that's a good question. Um, I mean, so it, it really is so individualized. I mean, definitely you can make the case, you know, if, if someone came in for, say, a digestive issue, I'm looking at more diet. Are they sensitive to a certain food? Do they have some sort of dysbiosis or a fungus bacteria infection go on in their gut, whatever the case may be. Or if I'm seeing a, a woman, you know, with a thyroid issue and she's trying to, you know, uh, help the medication work, but, you know, still having a thyroid issue and there she might be on armor thyroid or synthroid or some medication I'm helping along with her medical doctor, helping her function better with that medication. Um, so that might be a more obvious nutritional concern, but in terms of structural, there's, um, you know, one of the questions I know we're going to talk about is, uh, you know, it's, a, it's what's called applied kinesiology. And that's really a, the basis of what a lot of my training is. And applied kinesiology is uh, basically a functional biofeedback type assessment using primarily manual muscle testing to understand how uh, certain systems of the body are functioning accurately. Now, I've taken my training in applied kinesiology and nutrition and developed my own technique, which is called systems healthcare, which basically means I'm looking at how our body systems are all integrated with one another. 
And that's not just organ systems. In other words, how our cardiovascular system affects our immune system and vice versa and our digestive system and our hormonal system and our immune system, everything, but also how the systems of our visceral organs uh, are integrated with our musculoskeletal system, which is integrated with our nervous system, and it's all sort of linked together. So what that means pertaining back to your question, when you get into a systems-type healthcare, it means that, let's just say, you know, you're all of it, you know, you get out of bed one day, you walk downstairs, you're making breakfast, and as you're walk to get to go to breakfast, and as you're walking down your stairs, your knee starts hurting severely, or whatever the case may be. Well, that could be because of some biomechanical problem. Maybe you've been wearing the wrong type of shoes at work for so long that it's caused some foot dysfunction. And now, you know, like I mentioned earlier, a really common thing, maybe you're not pronating, supinating properly, your toes haven't been splaying, you've created all this musculoskeletal fascial imbalances in your foot, lower leg, and now the stress in your knee has just revealed itself that day for whatever reason. And now you have this knee pain. And it's because of some structural issue. But when we look at systems healthcare and, and types of applied kinesiology, we also realize that there's what's called a viscerosomatic relationship, which means there's a muscle-organ connection. And that muscle imbalances and fascial tension issues can be the result of organ-slash-nervous system dysfunction. So you could have, say, uh, a cortisol issue where your adrenal glands are super stressed out and your cortisol levels are always you know, very high because you're working 70 hours a week. And when you do your exercise and, and uh, training, you're, you're doing high-intensity interval training. You're never built your aerobic base. You're just always stressed out. You're not sleeping well. And a lot of the muscles that are reflective of the adrenal glands and therefore the cortisol levels uh, also determine the structure of the knee, like our one of our adductor muscles, our gracilis, one of our hamstring muscles, our sartorius muscle, and all the calf muscles, actually, the gastroc, soleus, and even your tip posterior. So all these muscles help the knee function properly. So if your adrenal glands are under this significant amount of stress and you're not recovering properly, then you're going to create some altercation in the muscles surrounding the knee as well as the foot. And that could be the reason for your knee problem. So you and I might both be exhibiting very similar type knee. We're both like, yeah, we both have knee pain right here. And it's both, you know, I say it's a level of a six. Or you say it's a level of six. It hurts when you do this. And, yours says, and I say it hurts when I do this. And it's very similar. But yours is because you're wearing the wrong type of footwear or have for so long. And mine is because I'm just killing myself with stress. Wow. That, that would be... That would be tricky to troubleshoot if you're... It is sometimes, yeah. <laughs> and the thing is, when you've done that, like when you've created a stressful situation, and that's the reason, so that's the true etiology of the, the knee problem, you still have to address the injury itself because now you've actually now created an injury. So you typically still have some connective tissue, fascial, musculoskeletal type work to do to help the person recover faster and correctly uh, because as, as those muscles have been improperly working, you've created these micro injuries, but you also have to go back and address the reason for the injury. And that can obviously be much more difficult, involved, and sometimes met with much resistance 
when it comes to that patient because you can say, hey, you know, the reason your knee hurts, you know, or, or the reason why, you know, your knee is not recovering after I've seen you twice, it's, it's not 100%, it's, you know, maybe 50% better or whatever the case may be is because you've got this inflammatory condition and it's because you're working 80 hours a week and, you know, you're, you're not eating the correct foods to help your body recover. You know, you're not eating like an anti-inflammatory diet. You're not sleeping well, you know, all these things. So your knee, so the muscles of the knees are not, are, re, are, are reflective of this stress in your body. And until that's resolved, the muscles will not function properly, allowing your knee to properly function, allowing you to fully heal. Does that make sense? Yeah, it, may, yeah. it makes a lot of sense. It's, it does. It's, I mean, to me, obviously, it does, or else I wouldn't do what I do. And that's sometimes really hard for people. Like, no, that's that's just you know, that's it's hard for some people to grasp. And and um, you know, that's that's why some people they do all these therapies for whatever injury they may have, and they're short lived, or sometimes, unfortunately, it's not helped at all, or it comes back because they didn't figure out why the problem happened. But more more people. If you think about it, I mean, obviously people can get in some traumatic accident, car accident, or like I said earlier, you know, you went for a jump, you landed wrong, right. just a bad day. I mean, every, everybody has had those for the most part. Um, but, you know, most people, you know, they, they develop like all of a sudden, yeah, my neck started hurting. You know, I woke up with a crick in my neck, as they say in the South. Uh, you know, or you, you bend down to pick up whatever, put your shoes on and you pull your, your back goes out. You know, or you, you go to put a glass away in your kitchen cupboard and your shoulder starts killing you. You know, why did, you know, it wasn't what you did at that, at that specific time. Uh, it was that movement just, you know, was the final straw that it was good. The problem was going to, the problem was there and the accident was just waiting to happen or the injury was just waiting to happen. It just happened to happen at that time from this slowly developing uh, stress to the nervous system, which has been now revealed or representative represented in your um in the musculoskeletal physical self right and so what i can see kind of where i say it makes sense and i can see where people might have questions about how or you know there's there's a whole like you said you have a whole uh curriculum of training that you've done to kind of understand all of these relationships um, and stuff that you've also developed over the years in your practice. So uh, what I can understand easily is that um, inflammation, for example, is is uh, is inflammation in the sense that if it comes from uh, nutritional stressors or environmental stressors or work stressors, um, if you're raising your kind of systemic inflammation, then in general, you're creating an environment that's more difficult to handle additional uh, inflammation or, or stress. Um, so somebody doing something like uh, wearing shoes that may not be appropriate for their uh, for their structure of their feet and their lower extremities um, may cause in combination with elevated systemic inflammation, uh, an increased likelihood of knee or uh, ankle or foot problems or whatever it is, um, hip, I guess it goes all the way up the chain if you're starting at the feet. But uh, Right, everywhere, yeah, sure. Yeah, but uh, I guess the challenging part to understand would be the specific relationship between 
something like the adrenals and the knee stabilizers, for example. Mm -hmm. And I imagine that that's probably why you have to go through a lot of training. You know, you can't just say, oh, yeah, this muscle connects to this uh, organ and this one connects to this organ. So right, just just accept it. Right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I know. Right. I mean, that's a specific philosophy or or type of training. When you say, "Oh, yeah," you know, these the the area like you know the shoulder muscles. There's certain shoulder muscles related more to the liver, and your your lats and your triceps more related to your pancreas. So, someone with a blood sugar problem might have you know more more latissimus issues, for example. So, that's definitely a specific type of. Uh, of uh, philosophy as well as, as well as training, um, as well as, um, you know, evaluation really is what it comes down to when you're evaluating a person for whatever the problem may be. You know, we know today though, well, we've known for a long time, but there's so much more information out every year, if not every month about the fascial system. And, you know, you, you may have heard me or caught me, you know, as I say, I say musculoskeletal, I say fascial, I say connective tissue and, you know, it's it's really just we're, we're sort of just like a whole fascial unit. You know, it's like we're wrapped in saran wrap. And, you know, most people are taking or therapists today, anybody concerned with human physiology and, of course, anatomy, let's just say human function, knows how important the fascia is, not just relative to how we move and how our structure is, but also in with respect on how we function, you know, via all the organs and and the systems of our body, because the fascia connects all of that. And if you have some fascial restriction, say in your shoulder, that fascia in some way or another is connected to every organ in your body. You know, your ear literally is connected in some way to your big toe. Yeah, we have specific fascial planes that people have identified. But what it comes down to is we're one thick, connective, spider web, thick, connective, gooey, gelatinous matrix of, of just stuff that is holding us together. And it's all integrated some way or another. And that's why someone can have neck pain when they're having a foot problem. That's why someone can have mm-hmm. uh, a, a, a a, 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 a digestive issue resulting from their back pain. Think about a woman we all know, whether from a friend or a girlfriend, spouse, for you know, who, you know, uh, who have had say just general PMS. I mean, what woman doesn't get PMS? And say they have you know back pain. Well, where is that back pain coming from? It's coming from the uterus typically, or especially if they have lower lower abdominal cramps, uterine cramps. Maybe mm-hmm. they get a right-sided hip pain, that's referred typically from the ovaries, whether that be from ovulation, an issue with ovulation, or maybe bad enough where they've developed an ovarian cyst. So this is how those organs, in this case, you know, the uterus or, or the uh, ovaries, are referring pain to, to, the structural, to the structural or physical aspect of the body, you know, resulting in back pain, even though it's a more internal type pain. So well, it's just yeah. a kind of an easy example to look at, but that can actually happen to a lesser degree where it's altering the function of the muscle. Again, I'll say of the connective tissue because of that visceral dysfunction. 
and it's not truly a musculoskeletal issue in the first place. Right. That that really captures something that I think is missed in a lot of discussions and perhaps because the causal or mechanistic explanation is not thoroughly you know clear without a lot of explanation it's more like well we understand this concept like you're just talking about but then linking a specific point to another specific point determining the exact mechanism of what's happening is maybe not all the way apparent to anyone without a lot of deeper digging. If you have structural issues, whether it be in the spine or somewhere else in the body, is it going to really impede your ability to make uh, progress with your digestion, even if you do start eating clean? Um, Yeah. I mean, it it definitely goes both ways. You know, I, I tell people, um, many years ago, I saw this woman, she moved to North Carolina from Texas. She came into my office because she fell off an indoor rock climbing wall. One of the carabiners broke. She fell like 15 feet or something like that. Really messed up her back and her shoulder. A whole bunch of other stuff too, but those were her major complaints. And she actually came into my office telling me that ever since that accident, she could no longer tolerate dairy. Couldn't drink milk. She, she all of a sudden became, now this wasn't like a lactose intolerance thing, like the, the sugar, but she was allergic to casein, which, you know, people out there listening right now, that's a very common type food sensitivity, food allergy to the casein protein. And she, she couldn't eat cheese anymore. She couldn't eat, uh, you know, couldn't drink milk, yogurt, ice cream, whatever, because of how that structural injury resulted in the digestive disturbance, which it caused her at that time, you know? So that stuff happens and it happens a lot more than what you may think. You know, it's not uncommon for me to see somebody at say age 40 and, and, um, I'll say, let's say they come in for headaches. I'll just give you a, a super general example. And I'll say, I'll say, I'll say, you know, the reason why I think you have headaches based off my evaluation, I'll say, you know, I think you have a gluten issue and, you know, stay off gluten. They'll say, well, but my headaches are, I've only had these headaches for a year. I've been I've been eating gluten my whole life. It's not like I just started eating gluten. Well, something changed, you know, at a certain period in their life. Maybe an injury resulted in that. Maybe, maybe uh, poor digestive health over the years slowly caught up with them, or a dysfunctional immune system, or a dysfunctional hormonal system slowly resulted in leaky gut syndrome or some immune impairment or whatever the case may be, now resulting in poor digestion of say gluten resulting in this vagus issue causing this gut brain connection and balance resulting in their headaches you know so all of a sudden you know hey now you're 41 years old and you you know you got headaches now because of what you're eating and that didn't happen before this so it's a you know these things happen and they can happen right away from traumatic accidents that's the first time i heard that um, you know, it's one of the more extreme cases with the woman from mm-hmm. the rock climbing wall. A lot of times I'm telling somebody that, that their injury created some visceral, uh, meaning organ related problem or the organ problem is ca- is causing their structural pain is even more common. But that was one of the few times that I can remember. It's definitely the more, most extreme time where someone came into my office and say, Hey, you know, I haven't been able to eat this ever since I fell. And it wasn't like, you know, something that 
directly like she, you know, she had CT scans of her gut. It's not like she had some, you know, di- obviously obvious measurable digestive impairment from right. that accident, you know? So it's, it's pretty wild. Yeah, that is wild. It's so it's, you know, again, kind of like I was saying is it may not be easy to explain the exact mechanism that occurred that caused that, but there's definitely, you can observe that something did happen. <laughs> and, you know, and, and anything can cause anything is what it comes down to. I mean, <laughs> yeah. and, and, you know, you know, pe- people say, uh, you know, they'll take like, say, uh, a medication or supplement and say, you know, I take this and, and I get, say, you know, this symptom, I take this and I get a, say a really bad headache, but, but my doctor, or, you know, the, the, there's no evidence that this, you know, flaxseed oil say, or maybe even a medication causes headaches. That's nowhere in the literature. But you know what? If it happens to you, it happens to you. I mean, I've seen the weirdest reactions from someone taking a supplement that they shouldn't be taking, uh, or obviously a medication even more common. And they say, but that's not one of the side effects of taking this. But you know what? It doesn't matter because these things aren't going to be listed unless they're in some noticeable amount. And that's if they're even reported. Right. Uh, but people don't realize. I mean, I, I have seen, you know, my office is almost smack dab in the middle of the University of North Carolina and Duke University. These are two huge doctor teaching hospitals. And I've seen enough patients be in clinical trials over the years where they've been uh, nicely removed, which means kicked out of a study because they're not conforming to the desired expectations. In other words, they're doing too well or they're not doing well enough. Therefore, they're removed from the next level of trials because they're not conforming to expected outcomes and they're going to throw, they're going to throw the, the research off, you know? So think about that for a second. I mean, that's really happening way more than what you think. So maybe the reason why uh, a certain problem is not listed on something you're taking is because during that trial, those people were removed from the study because there were definitely undesirable outcomes. That's not a conspiracy theory. I'm not like one of those people, you know, you know, who, I mean, you know, okay. But no, no reason to get into that. I like to think of things scientifically, but the fact is that this happens all the time. Uh, you know, and, and it's not just because I know people at these, at this, at these schools who have been involved, but I actually know people who have been part of these trials who were removed because they did not fit um, into the, the group that they wanted them to fit in. So, you know, so therefore, if you have that problem, I mean, it doesn't matter. It's still N equals one. You know, it's all about how you feel. You know, it doesn't matter what might have corrected somebody else or what caused someone else's problem. It's all about what you're resulting. So that's why I always tell people, you know, no matter what, no matter who you want to listen to, me, your friend, your parents, your, you know, whatever, you know, whatever works for you, listen to your body, you know, pay attention to how you're feeling, um, how you used to feel, uh, you know, how you move, uh, you know, what you're experiencing, not what somebody is telling you. You know, if you take something, you feel like shit. Someone's like, oh, no, I can't cause that. Just stick it out. No, you still don't feel well from doing that. You might want to reconsider that. Yeah, self-awareness is so powerful. And and that's a a concept that really resonates with this community because um, I've, you know, the nature of 
HRV apps and whatnot is that people are trying to gain a deeper awareness of their own situation and they mm-hmm. realize that different situations cause different uh, outcomes for different people. And, um, you know, an example that you could say uh, somebody goes on like an all pizza diet, right? Or like you have 10 different people go on an all pizza diet. Uh, nobody's going to recommend that as a healthy diet, at least not people that I interact with. And, uh, but one person might get diabetes. Another person might get just overweight. Another person might be underweight because they're not absorbing anything. Somebody might, uh, you know, down the road get Alzheimer's. They could, uh, the problems could manifest in so many different ways from basically the same choice. Um, you know, and that's kind of, again, just another aspect of that self-awareness. Uh, and it was, one out of those 10 people might go be in the NBA. <laughs> Maybe pizza works for them, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so, yeah, that's interesting. So, you, you talked a little bit earlier um, about dysbiosis and, and that type of stuff. Do you run specific tests for those situations when you're looking at gut health? I do. Um, you know, there's lots of functional tests out there. I'm really, I, I have all those available to me. I do them when someone's not getting, when someone's not improving. It's not a standard thing I do in my office. I'm, I'm a very hands-on doc. Um, we don't even have computers in my office, believe it or not. That's why we're talking right now from my house. Um, yeah, we don't, we don't have any technology, so I don't use, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not against these things. It's no, nothing personal to people who use these, but I, I don't use, you know, stem machines, ultrasounds. Um, I don't use even any like trigger point, uh, things like bars or, you know, Graston technique or anything like that. I use my hands. I'm very hands-on. Uh, so, uh, you know, I'll do lab tests, like hormonal tests, saliva tests, blood tests, um, when necessary, and depends on that person. So if I'm seeing someone with a digestive issue and they're not improving after, you know, the dietary change, after those few visits, and I mean like really not improving at all, uh, which doesn't happen too often, but, you know, I'm wise enough and man enough, I think, to say, you know, I haven't fixed everybody, unfortunately, just how it goes. Mm-hmm. And, you know, then I would definitely do one of those functional tests to see, uh, you know, that measures, you know, like inflammatory markers and, you know, gut health checks for parasites more than a standard, typically medical lab, that sort of stuff. So yeah, absolutely. Um, it's all, it's all case sensitive. Okay. And, uh, just a, a rapid fire thought from earlier too, is, um, you know, you mentioned with the whole sock doc theme and with a, a lot of our conversation, folks get the idea that you're not the biggest fan of shoes or certain shoes, for example, um, would you recommend everyone just kind of go straight barefoot or straight to barefoot shoes and make that their... Make make the world a better place? <laughs> yeah, <saying>. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, mean, I mean, yes, but, but yes, but no is the answer to that because most people can't do that. Most people have unfortunately developed such poor foot health from you know, wearing bad shoes for most of their life. Sometimes, unfortunately, it's, it was since their pers- first pair of shoes as they were a child, they were put in poor shoes uh, during their first step. Um, 
and their biomechanics are just a disaster. And I even have this one article, one of the more popular articles on SockDoc called uh, Healthy People Equals Barefoot People, and which means, you know, our, our feet are such a reflection of our overall health. That's why it kind of irks me when someone says, oh, you know, uh, plantar fasciitis is a running injury. Shin splints is a running injury. Patella, condomination patella is a running injury. No, it isn't. It, it might happen more in runners, but it's, a, it's just another human injury. I know plenty of people, I've seen plenty of people who have plantar fasciitis and they sit at a desk 15 hours a day and they don't work at all. I mean, they don't exercise at all. <laughs> all they do is sit at a desk and one morning they got up from bed and they, their foot hit the floor and they screamed out in pain and they have plantar fasciitis. It's not a running injury. They, they don't run. They barely walk. You know, so these are a human physiological, a human physiology injuries that people are coming down with. We call them what we want. It doesn't matter what you call what you call an injury. It's all about how that injury evolved in that person. It's the processes leading up to that injury, not not the end injury result. So, um, you know what? I just did. I answer your question, or did I go off topic there? No, no, that was great. It, it, it okay. comes back to kind of the root cause and then, you know, kind of just bringing it back around is that uh, not everyone can just jump in and go barefoot straight right, out of the right, gate. Right, So with the shoes, yeah. So, I mean, so that's why, you know, that person with that issue, if they just go barefoot or if they go to these minimalist shoes, then they're going to end up with problems. And another sock doc I wrote a couple of years ago was, was some, I forget the exact name of it, but it was, why the minimalist uh, shoe trend will not last. And, you know, that trend, the, the marketing to that really started around, I might be off on these dates a little bit, but like two, that late 2010, 2011, really peaked quickly uh, in 2011, 2012. And it's been a downward spiral since then. Yeah, there's companies like Vivo Barefoot and Vibram and, uh, you know, and Lem's Zero Shoes, my friend Steven Sashin, uh, he, you know, they've really stuck true to the cause. I know that might sound funny, but you know, like really true to their philosophy of minimalist barefoot human movement. And you know, get a lot of other companies that have just, you know, developed minimalist or barefoot style shoes just to sell shoes because that's what was the popular market. Now these companies have all they've done now because the, the market has turned so many people realize, hey, I can't wear those shoes. I need, I need more cushion. I need more of a heel. I need more of a support. My feet hurt after I'm walking or running in a very mm. minimalist shoe for you know, a, a 20 minutes or a half hour. I can't do my run anymore. So now these shoes have become thicker. You know, they're no longer three, four millimeter like they were. Now the, now the next year model, you know, New Balance did this, Ultra did this, many other companies. Now their shoes are all of a sudden you know, back to... 15 millimeters, you know, with a, with a, you know, a, a four five, seven typical millimeter drop, meaning the heel to the forefoot. Uh, you know, now they put the arch support back in Merrill did that, you know, it's hard to get a Merrill shoe. Now there's like one version, I think where there's no arch in there. So these shoes have really gone in the opposite direction in such a quick time, you know, one to two years because the footwear is so representative of person's health. Now I get it. We all need to wear footwear for certain conditions. You know, your job might require it. You know, I'm not recommending someone go out and, you know, work construction or work in a, a factory and, and go barefoot or even without some foot protection on the top of their feet. That's just not right. wise. I get it that unfortunately, a lot of women are un, un, unable to wear a healthy 
uh, shoe that is that will benefit their foot or at least not deter their foot because it's not going to look professional, you know, as they're walking in in their penny loafers to some important, uh, you know, conference or meeting. They're, they're not going to be looked upon professionally as a female and females are already have enough issues still, I believe, in the workforce. It's, it's a sad situation. Um, you know, so as guys, we have more, there's more minimalist options for us, you know, in terms of dress shoes. So, you know, you wear shoes for two reasons. We wear them because, you know, maybe you want to just choose to look nice, you know, to go out on a date or go out on the town or whatever. That's perfectly fine for the most part. Obviously, you can get into like some high heels that will just really wreck your body, um, including boots for guys. But uh, and you also wear them to protect your feet. I mean, that's really the main reason you wear them to protect your feet. Um, you don't wear them to or you shouldn't be wearing them to uh, prevent a problem, you know, or to improve performance. Uh, you know, so all these things are misconceptions of the shoe industry. But when someone takes a a shoe, say that they've been wearing for so long, like a, say a basketball player with a typical high heel or a high top type shoe where, you know, the heel to, to forefoot, which is the stack height, the drop is say several, several millimeters, if not even an inch. And now they go to a zero drop shoe. Well, now their Achilles is going to elongate. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, you know, their calves are, you're, you're going to wake up with super painful calves the next day. Uh, maybe near foot problems. You'll, you'll develop an injury if you do that too quickly. So you have to slowly transition down out of orthotics. You know, I'm, I'm super against orthotics and, uh, and super supportive shoes, but that doesn't mean I recommend everybody just ditch them. But if you have to wear them to function, whether that to be to walk, to run, to, to get about your day. Then and you're and and without them you're you don't move well or you have pain. Then all you're doing is bracing and, and masking your dysfunction, and it'll come back to haunt you one day. And maybe right. that's when you're maybe that's when you're 70 years old, and your vision's going a little bit, and your ears are going a little bit, and these other aspects of your of your body that helps with your proprioception. And now your feet have been so poorly uh, poorly functioning because of what you've been wearing on your feet for the past 60, 70 years of your life. And now your balance is poor. And what do you, what happens Well, you fall, you know, you lost your step and you fall, you break a hip and you die all because of what you wear on your feet. (laughs) 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 I'm not trying to be one of those extreme people, but, but in all seriousness, that really does happen. And I, and, and I'm joking, I'm being sarcastic, but in the same sense, Guess what? And, and of course, it's not funny, but that really does happen. I mean, you take an elderly person with, you know, osteoporosis and they fall, that could very be the end of them. I mean, you know, they don't recover from that break and now they're immobile and that's the beginning of the last year of their life, maybe because of the fall, because of the poor proprioception, because of what they've been wearing on their feet their whole life, because they were told that they need more support and more protection and more comfort. And they never addressed why their feet were so bad or why their biomechanics were so bad. Yes. Yeah. It's, you know, I, I, I can relate some, some, uh, similar information to that is one. We, my wife's grandfather passed recently and, um, actually last week we went to his funeral and, uh, he was an amazing man, very functional as far as mobility and stuff goes, though he, uh, it was a fall that finally was the final, uh, straw. Um, and, and just on that note of falling, it's just cause it's, uh, fresh on our mind and the family. Um, you know, I, 
over the years have thought, one thing I want to be really good at over the years is falling. And that's how, like, how old was your granddad? Uh, 92. Yep. It's a pretty, pretty good year, you know, um, you know, pretty, pretty good life, but. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. 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 So, but, but I agree with, I mean, it's interesting, but I, I don't want me to interrupt you, but, uh, yeah, I mean, people don't know how to fall properly. Right. And, and it, it's, it's kind of funny to say that, but, um, you know, I've taken natural movement courses and that sort of thing where, where you learn how to fall face down, you know, how to, how to properly land on your hands and, and absorb impact as well as how to properly fall backwards. Like if you fell with your feet out from underneath you, so you don't just smack the back of your head on the ground and have a concussion. Yes. Um, you know, but that's, yeah. but that's, but that's a trained, it's a trained attribute, you know, so you're, you, you're ready for it and it's second nature it's second nature when it happens. You know, when I used to do Ironman triathlons, you know, everybody, you know, any cyclist has most likely fallen off their bike several times. And, you know, it's not something you can really practice, but you kind of learn that instinctual thing. If you fall off your bike, don't put your arm down. Don't put your hand out like you're stiff arming someone in football because you're going to, you're going to break your, your clavicle. You're going to break your collarbone. Um, so you, you learn how to roll and that sort of stuff. Anyway, go ahead. I didn't mean to interrupt you, but I just want to throw that in. Oh, no, it's kind of along the same lines. I mean, if anyone has ever studied martial arts or looked at it uh, uh, at all, um, one thing they might notice is that um, every martial artist has to be aware of the floor uh, or gymnast or parkour or any anything where you're out moving uh, or have the potential of falling. And uh, some martial arts, they spend months and months and months in the early days just practicing how to interact with the four and fall and roll and uh, and things like that. So it's just fascinating that there are people out there who do practice falling on the floor um, and then they experience some huge benefits. I had a a friend who uh, studies Aikido and he said that that was for like six straight months. All they had him do was uh, fall, fall over in different ways. They would push him over, trip him, uh, have him fall uh, on his own. And he said by the end of that six months, he had a lifelong skill uh, where, and this guy is like six foot four. um, So it's not a, it's not a short distance to the ground. Um, but he said, I can fall and it's like just any, any angle, any situation and the floor just doesn't hurt me. It just kind of roll with it. And, uh, that sounds really, of course, depending on where you're coming from listening to this, it sounds like a really impossible feat or far off or possibly, uh, for younger years or something. But, um, I tell people that, if you have a hard time just getting down and sitting on the floor and then standing back up, then that's a pretty good sign that you are gambling uh, with potential catastrophe if you ever get in a situation where you suddenly get on the floor. Absolutely. Um, or, or even more so if you can't get up without using your hands, right? Like you have to be, if you have to push or pull your way up. In other words, can, can you get off the ground without using your hands? Um, right. Yeah. yeah, that's actually that's interesting you say that. It was in uh, the episode, I think, with uh, Sarah Jameson on the podcast. We talked about that's a test that I like to do with people is like, can you just sit down and stand up off the floor without using your hands? And yeah. there's a lot. And it's, it's amazing how many people, first of all, can't do that, but also how many people are afraid to do it, especially usually what I see as they get over like 50, 60 years old. 
I'll say, let me see you get up. And I'll watch them. They'll always use their hands, even if it's to push off a knee. Or they'll grab my table or a chair close by. And I'll say, now do it again without using your hands. And the first thing they'll say is, I can't do that. They won't even try until I ask them to. And then often they can, but they've already had in their head, they've been deconditioned to not do that because it's more convenient, obviously, to use your hands. And then because they're not using their hands or because they're not not using their hands, in other words, they're, they're using their hands so much and they think they need to, then they start to slowly develop this deconditioning process and eventually the fear that they won't be able to get up without using their hands. And next thing you know, you know, they, they can't. They're stuck on the floor if there's nothing close by to grab onto. Right. And, and, and I think it's important to note that, and I think you'd agree, it's not, we wouldn't say to those people or I wouldn't say to those people that they're um, stupid or anything for not, wanting or feeling like they could do that. And it's part of the conditioning that they've been, you know, through sitting and through being protected from falling for over the years and kind of losing that ability to comfortably deal with that situation. And then there's also just pressure from external sources. So when I used to work in a corporate environment, I uh, had the ergonomics person it was a fairly large company so they had an ergonomics person um come to my desk and help me adjust it um so that i wouldn't very quickly develop any issues it would just take longer um but uh (laughs) she said to me because i i traveled a lot she said never lift your luggage up into the uh overhead compartment on a plane and I was like, why not? And she's like, well, because that's how you could injure your shoulder. Yeah, when you're, if you haven't lifted anything above your head in years, then maybe you don't want to load up a suitcase and lift it over your head. Yep. But it's a, it's a whole protective thing. And, and, it's, and, it's, and it's even worse when someone injures themselves. You know, we still hear, I still hear someone say a, a bad neck injury. They're told never to lift typically five to seven pounds over their head anymore or someone who had a bad back issue like a like a disc issue lower back they're told never to lift you know usually more than 15 or 20 pounds think about how that's now going to decondition them for the rest of their life now i get it there's steps to be taken initially in an acute problem you might not want to do that right away but these people are told that for the rest of their life you know 35 40 50 year old person who has this injury And even after, hopefully, it's recovered and the pain is gone, and now they're into these rehab programs that at first might be necessary, but in the end, typical, they're they're jokes. I mean, they're doing these weights that a five-year-old can do. Uh, You know, know, I'm doing my 10-pound weights for, you know, 40 reps. What a waste of time. And they're just, now they've developed this major instability, this weakness in that area of their body because they've told, been told never to do much more than that. So what happens now when they need to, you know, carry a bag of groceries into the house or a, a piece of luggage that obviously weighs more than 10 pounds, you know, whatever the case may be, or help somebody else out, you know, be a, be an efficient human being. That's no longer the case. So now either they can't do it or they're going to create some significant injury because they've been so, you know, unconditioned. Right. Yeah. It's- Crazy. And I had a, uh, when I was in high school, I broke my ankle really bad. It was a a compound fracture and my foot was 
<laughs> I'll, I'll spare the details anyway. Yeah, well, I mean, if you, if you say compound fracture, the, the details are enough right there. You know. Yes. Uh, <laughs> that's, uh, all, that's all I need to know. <laughs> exactly. So, uh, so anyone who's gone through something like that, though, knows, okay, yes, obviously, as soon as that happened and for a while after that, I was not just tromping around barefoot on that ankle. And I had a cast for a period of time and then, you know, crutches and the splint and then eventually uh, just a shoe and I did the physical therapy. Putting the cast on the foot had a very specific uh, purpose, right? It was Mm -hmm. to protect the foot or the ankle rather from further injury while it was in a weakened state. But at at no point was I thinking, I'm going to wear this cast the rest of my life. Right. Right. And so that's kind of what I was uh, bringing it back around to is like something like orthotics that you well, mentioned. Exactly. Over. That's what I was going to say. I mean, that's what you're really uh, leading into here is it's, I mean, that's exactly what happens with people orthotics. I mean, how many orthotics were always intended to be used as very short, you know, term, you know, rehab, get you out of pain, bracing. That's really what they are is a bracing supportive device. Uh, and, and I'd be okay if that's how they were used, you know, one week, one month, maybe even a few months if, if necessary. But how often do you see somebody who's put in a pair of orthotics and they're told they're only going to use this for a short period of time? No, it's like, here's your orthotics. This is what you're always going to need to wear. I mean, that's how I learned it. You know, that's how I was not only trained as a, as a doc to, to give people orthotics, but I mean, I was in orthotics, you know, on and off, um, even in my minimalist shoes, you know, I toyed around with them all the time to see if they helped me perform better in triathlons, you know, running, you know, as I was learning how to make them and they, they never seemed to help me. And I would always go back to my minimalist shoes, but I mean, I must've had, you know, five, six pairs of orthotics over the years just to see if my psych, you know, made my cycling better and you know, never for an injury, but for performance enhancement, you know, custom orthotics. But a lot of people have had injuries and that's why they're given orthotics and they're told, yeah, you know, you just, you're always going to need these because you have a flat foot or because you overpronate, or because you have high arches or whatever the case may be. And yeah, you're just going to wear them for the rest of your life and that's how it's going to be. Yeah. And then in that, I guess that's exactly what I was trying to highlight is it's, it would sound absurd if I said, okay, I broke my ankle. I'm going to have a broken ankle for the rest of my life. Sorry. You're just going to wear a cast forever now. Um, that, of course, sounds absurd, but to a lesser degree, that's exactly what we're saying when it comes to something like orthotics in a lot of cases. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I would say you're right. I mean, you can't always say always, but yeah, 99% of the cases easily. Right. And so uh, I, I, you had an interesting quote about drugs on your about page as well. Um, did I? What, what did yeah, I say? <laughs> promoting them all over the place. No, uh, right. is I, I almost think that this orthotics discussion is a, is a nice just, would you say orthotics and uh, drugs are pretty much the same thing? <laughs> yeah, well, I, I'm, I'm actually, I know I say on there, uh, orthotics are the aspirin of your feet or something like that. Oh, you even say it. Okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So the, the drug use thing is um, the quote that you had that kind of stood out to me was... Yeah, the, the, the only exception I'll make is there's truly some drugs out there that people need to, to, you know, to keep them alive or to recover from something. For example, an antibiotic, uh, you know, I mean, a lot of times someone's on a drug that they just can't stop 
you know, right away, of course, like a high blood pressure medication or a, a maybe a major uh, antipsychotic, you know, uh, schizophrenic type drug. You know, some, some of these truly help a person function. I, I don't want people to think that I'm, of course, pro-pharmaceutical. I'm, I'm by far not, but I do realize that there are specific cases where they are necessary. Um, usually not, but there are cases. Orthotics, I, I would not put in that category or I'd, I'd put in that category to a much greater degree where I can't remember the last time I, because I've never seen it where someone, I was like, yeah, you need to be in these orthotics for a period of time. Um, right. so I, I, you know, so that's, that's the big difference for me where, uh, they're, they're that much, you know, I don't want to say more harmful cause we're talking about two completely different things in a way, but I think you get what I'm saying. Yeah. And, and to me, I guess like, uh, you know, the, the quote that stood out was that if you're using a drug ongoing for any, any drug at all, then it's an indication that something of course is not right. Right. With right. The, in the body. And that's not necessarily, that's not an insult. It's just an observation. And like you said, there's certain situations where using drugs or medications are unavoidable. But if you relate it back to the cast on my ankle, story um you know it's sounding absurd that i'd have to wear a cast for the rest of my life which um you know i'm sure there are injuries where that actually happens but uh, the majority of injuries it just takes the right kind of combination of getting back in the right direction and and healing and part of that is nutrition and sleep and all these other integrated pieces so if you're using a drug whether it's over the counter or prescription of any sort on an ongoing basis like you said, it, it could be indicating, of course, that something's not right, but that doesn't mean that that's something you have to live with for the rest of your life. Um, and you may not always be told that by whoever's pushing the drug or or just in general, it might be hard uh, a hard journey, but there are different areas and you've talked about them with your systems healthcare uh, concept to look at. And, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but nutrition, sleep, stress, structural and movement patterns, um, you know, inflammation, uh, gut dysbiosis, all of these things that you can look at. And until you've looked at all of them, which it's impossible to look at everything, but you can try to knock out a lot of different things, you may never be able to get off that drug. Uh, That's right. So, yeah, I kind of went on a little bit of a soapbox there, but... Um, no, so it, it, was, it was applicable, yeah. Yeah, okay. relative to what we're talking about, yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, well, cool. So, um, let's see. I had a couple notes here of things that I wanted to to hit up with you, and and we talked about a, applied kinesiology. Um, you know, functional neurology. We mentioned is that something that we've gone into depth already, or do you want to kind of give a quick overview of what that is? Um, I mean, functional neurology. There's there's different definitions of that. Sometimes people use that term too loosely because, you know, saying you do neurology always just sounds smart. Um, but, you know, functional neurology is, is basically how we look at how a person's nervous system is, is basically perhaps under a state of dysfunction, yet there's no pathology. So a really good example would be you know, I, this happens a couple times a year. I'll see someone who's had a concussion. You know, it's very big in the news today, especially with, you know, football and the link to uh, ALS, Lou Gehrig's, that sort of stuff. 
where they'll go, they'll have a concussion. The adults or kid will have a concussion and they'll go to the neurologist and they'll say, okay, you know, there's, there's no bleed, you know, there's nothing structural, you know, you're going to be tired, you're going to have memory issues, it's going to take a year to recover typically. Sometimes people don't even recover, but they, you know, that's why a lot of these concussion tests are now just based off symptoms or pre and post function. Um, but with functional neurology, we can do specific evaluations and specific treatments to help that person uh, recover faster. So we can do specific things to impact their cerebellum, right side or left side. We can do specific things to address cortex function or mesencephalon function or whatever part of the brain needs a direct therapy to help them recover so much faster. And by so much, I mean like, you know, sometimes weeks, rather than a year or, or years to recover faster from those memory issues, that mental and physical fatigue, that confusion, that, you know, maybe, maybe blur vision, headaches, whatever the case may be from a concussion or, you know, a seizure issue or whatever the case may be. Wow. Okay. Yeah. And so that, that makes a lot of sense. It kind of helps you zero in on specific uh, areas that need addressing. And so uh, I had two quick questions as well. Uh, interesting ones, kind of just personal uh, more than anything, but along the way, um, you've obviously learned a lot over the years and you've had a practice going for, what'd you say, 19 years now? Congratulations on that. Um, how many, or uh, have you made any like big glaring mistakes over the years that you kind of look Never. back on? Of course not. Never. Never. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I, I think, I mean, that's bound to happen. I mean, I mean, I'm, uh, geez, small mistakes, big mistakes. I mean, I've, I've never killed anybody or caused more harm. I can say that, you know, um, I mean, one thing, if you want to call it a mistake, one big change in my practice from about five, six years ago is, you know, I was always trained and always went the philosophy, especially when I was heavy into triathlons of, uh, you know, grazing and eating several meals throughout the day, you know, eat six, seven small meals throughout the day, always be eating something. And when I really got into a more paleo type diet and eating three, sometimes four big meals, a lot more fat, a lot more protein, less carbohydrates you know, training my body to go burn fat and training my body to go five, six plus hours without eating, my health just improved so much more. And that's one of the things that I, you know, my patients who I would see, uh, you know, my, my, my typical average patient of mine, after I get them where they need to be, I might see them one to three or four times a year. Sometimes I only see them once or twice a year, a lot of people, but I'd see them again. I'm like, you know, I think you should, you know, not be eating every few hours. Like I told you, you know, and they're like, wait, I thought that's how we're supposed to eat. No, try eating, you know, more fat for breakfast. You should be able to go five or six hours without eating, you know, have another egg. You know, of course with the yolk, try some coconut milk, put more butter in your meal, um, you know, more fat on that salad and, you know, stop grazing so much and, and see how you feel. And, you know, since I started doing that or, you know, patients just got even more healthy. Uh, some of the little nagging stuff they might have been seeing me for that, you know, was never getting to 100% improved energy to sleep, all that stuff. I saw a lot more people need less nutrients, like less, you know, fats, of course, especially even like less fish oil. 
uh, which I, you know, a lot of people need those types of omega threes, but I saw less of that. I wasn't, you know, needing to say, Hey, you know, you need fish oil now. So that was a, that was probably in terms of an overall big change in my practice, you know, from when I started practice in 96, um, or 98, uh, you know, till 2011. So those 12, 13 years, you know, then I shifted those past six, seven years to that type of diet. And, um, so that was, I don't want to say necessarily it's a mistake, but it's a big change. I mean, in a way I could, would consider that a mistake where I felt like I was misguiding people, uh, since I don't think that works for most people. Some, some people do okay eating often, but I think most people don't. They're, they're sort of, uh, you know, they gotta, uh, live to eat rather than eat to live sort of thing. Right. And, and it kind of, you know, like you said, I, uh, you're, the mistake would be is if you were presented with that case and then you didn't recognize it for what it was and you just yeah. stuck, stuck yeah. with your old way. I think a lot of people, you know, they, they, a lot of docs and therapists out there, they learn something new, but it's hard for them to change because they've been in practice for so long. Unfortunately, I see that with when I teach some docs and my students, um, my technique, the systems healthcare and. And I still, I see them not change after a while because they're so used to doing something. They're so, you know, it's like working for them and maybe they're getting 50% of the people better with that one therapy, whatever the problem may be. But, you know, if they just take the time to change as uncomfortable it may be at first, or maybe more time consuming, they could, you know, change it to 80% or something like that. So, yeah. Right. And yeah, I think what, uh, you know, there's a big thing in the medical community with compliance. It's like uh, a patient will often not stick with a treatment plan, even if they're convinced that it's good for them. And even if the physician tells them exactly what to do. Um, and people don't realize that physicians are people too. And uh, they may find or learn something that may be better or um, you know, something they even believe in, but then not be able to implement it into their practice. Yeah. Well, there's a re- right. There's a reason it's called a practice, right? <laughs> right. That's true. Ho- yep. Hopefully I'm smarter than I was last year. That's all I have to say. <laughs> <laughs> so along those same lines, uh, I mean, that this kind of already covers it, but any other big aha moments along the journey? Uh... I mean, I, I can honestly say no with that. I mean, because... I really, I can honestly say I, I, I really like what I do because as you can tell from us talking, I mean, I, I don't have like a cookbook method for what I do with somebody. So it's not like, oh, everybody's getting this type of treatment. So it's a very investigative type of evaluation and therapy that I do with somebody. So I'm always having aha moments. I mean, it always amazes me when I can be testing someone's shoulder and through my evaluation, I'm like, you got a foot issue. And I remember this one tennis player I was seeing once and you know, I just, I was working on his shoulder. He had shoulder surgery. This really nice kid, uh, really going to be, going to be a great tennis player. He is a great tennis player, but, uh, anyway, uh, and, and I just remember knowing that he had a foot injury or something was going on with his foot, I should say. And I go down I put my hand on top of his foot and I'm feeling around. I go right here, like you got an injury here, you know, whether he injured it two weeks ago or, you know, 10 years ago, you know, when he was four or whatever, or two years old, um, you know, I didn't know I'm not psychic. And I just remember doing, I'm like, and, and, and just remember his mom, like smile, like, how did you know that? Like, how, how did you know that there was an injury there? And, and it's pretty cool to see that, not just to amaze people, but even for me, 
it's not like, oh yeah, I feel pretty cool, but it's also like, it's just un- unbelievable to me. Like I'm always seeing these really neat aha moments. Like, yeah, you know, from this old injury you had in your foot, you haven't been, you haven't been playing or you haven't been, you know, moving correctly, whether you're running, walking, or, or as you're playing, playing tennis. And that's causing, you know, a mechanical issue all the way up, transferring to your knee, to your hip and, and into your shoulder and possibly the reason why you ended up injuring your shoulder. And because I like, kind of like we're kind of finishing up here with the way we started and how all this stuff is interrelated. And even though someone might not have a pain in that problem, in that foot anymore, in this case, you know, the dysfunction was still there because it was never properly uh, treated and rehabilitated. And that just still blows me away that I can like work on someone's foot like that, find the imbalance in the foot, work on the connective tissue in the foot, and then see the change in the shoulder. And, and it's like, okay, now do what you just couldn't do. And now they can, you know, scratch their back higher, you know, put their hand up back further up their spine than what they just did two minutes before that, before I worked on their foot. That just, it, it blows me away every day you know, that you see stuff immediately like that. It's not like, oh, you got to do rehab on that for two months and now it's improved. No, it actually just happened within the last minute. And it stays too because you correct an injury pattern. So I think that stuff's always awesome. Yeah, that is, that's, those are, like you said, that having daily or or frequent aha moments like that is, it's really powerful. It's very motivating too, I'm sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it is, yeah. Yeah, so it's, um yeah, I mean, that's, that's a lot of great information for people to think about. I mean, we we started off kind of talking about just doing some real low-tech kind of self-awareness uh, practices that people can do. Look in the mirror, um, see if you've see if you can get somebody, even if it's just a friend, to look at your uh, gait and see if you look off whack. Um, even, even better, have somebody who knows what they're doing look at it. Um, such as Dr. Steve, the sock doc <laughs> and, uh, no, but, uh, in all seriousness. And then, uh, you even mentioned that you don't jump straight to kind of the, uh, you know, traditional testing route in your office that you're very hands-on. You spend a lot of time with folks. And I, and I think those aha moments that we were just talking about wouldn't be possible if you were, spending only 10 or 15 minutes with a patient and just running a, a test that was like standard, like anyone who comes in gets this test. If, if, uh, if you get A, B or C result, then you get, uh, antibiotic no matter what. No, I'm just kidding. But, um, uh, you know, basically kind of just following an, if this, then that kind of really cold impersonal experience that a lot of folks are, uh, presented with, um, wouldn't be able to have those aha moments as easily. Um, So I commend your uh, ability to set that amount of time aside for people. Um, It's pretty powerful stuff. Uh, So uh, why don't we wrap up with that? I think there's a lot of good stuff for folks to think about. Um, Dr. Steve, where can people find you? Uh, Physically in Chapel Hill, North Carolina online. You can find me at sockdoc.com. So that's S-O-C-K-D-O-C.com as well as drganjemi.com, D-R-G-A-N-G-E-M-I.com. And then uh, there's those sites are always linked together some way or another. And then uh, for therapists and uh, docs interested in systems healthcare, that's at systemshealthcare.net. 
Awesome. I appreciate it. The systems healthcare alone sounds like I think we're going to have to have a follow-up conversation on because very interesting. Cool. Um, And I encourage anyone listening to kind of take a step back and take a look at how everything's integrated together. And uh, don't forget the structural piece um, indeed. Yeah. All right. Thanks for your time. We'll we'll wrap up and uh, see you all next time. Sponsored by HRVCourse.com. Truly understand the science and mechanisms behind heart rate variability and how to apply them towards your goals. Use discount code ELITEPODCAST for 10% off your first HRV course. That's all one word, ELITEPODCAST. Visit HRVCourse.com to get access today.